welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. And welcome to The Common Bridge. This is our 40th episode. We're very excited about that. We've just gotten over uh, 10,000 downloads, and um, we're very, very thankful for you out there for listening to our podcast. We have a special guest today, Rich is very excited about, um, and it's Kenneth R. Chadwell, who served as a trial and appellate attorney with the United States Department of Justice. And while with the DOJ for 29 years as an assistant U.S. attorney, he also served as a deputy chief for national security, where he prosecuted terrorism cases following the 9-11 attacks on the United States. Mr. Chadwell was one of five elite federal litigators chosen to be a counterterrorism prosecutor following the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, and he also served as a senior litigation counsel for the United States Attorney's Office and concluded his DOJ career as Deputy Chief of National Security. Today, Mr. Chadwell is a partner at Mantis Honigman, where his practice includes white-collar crime defense, federal grand jury investigations, national security matters, corporate compliance and investigations, immigration litigations, and complex business cases. We now join Rich Helpy and Kenneth R. Chadwell in conversation. Uh, today, it is our honor to have as a guest a man who has devoted his life to the administration of justice. You've heard his uh, biography. Uh, we're pleased to welcome Mr. Ken Chadwell to the Common Bridge. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Rich, for inviting me to have this conversation with you. So today we're, we're, we're trying to make some sense out of the reporting around the case of General Michael Flynn. Um, General Flynn served as director of the Defense Intelligence Agency and in the administration of President Barack Obama, and then was an active campaigner for then-candidate Donald Trump and ultimately serving uh, for just 24 days as the national security advisor uh, following the election. Of Donald Trump. Uh, he's unique in that he's a man who's lost jobs from two presidents, and he came to be a catalyst for the probes around Russia's involvement in the 2016 election and the aspersions about Russian influence over the Trump campaign and administration. Reporting outlets have thrown around terms and processes that the average American has a hard time understanding and discerning. Conclusions have been reached and reported that you know, frankly, truly frightened me. You know, what if our president was compromised by a hostile foreign actor? You know, someplace in there, there's the truth. And, and I believe that all Americans, no matter what their political persuasion, share in the desire for a fair and competent legal system. And even the most ardent partisan has to feel uneasy about misfeasance in our government, even if it's aimed at those they don't like or support. We, the people, have granted government power to invade the absolute most private parts of our life, to seize our freedom and even take our life, to destroy our prosperity and our personal happiness. And we, the people, have also set limits, boundaries, and rules so that those enormous powers are not used unlawfully or unfairly. You know, if for no other reason that the shoe might be on the other foot someday. 
And this is what the common bridge is about, finding places where some agreement may be reached. You know, it's often a struggle, as we've witnessed so many times, uh, to understand the issues of the day, uh, given the reporting outlets that exist. You know, most of us go about our daily lives and don't think about what might happen should we become uh, under investigation. But, you know, are there unexpected risks that an ordinary person might face when interacting with the federal government? And, and how does that risk escalate based on perhaps what kind of craft you're involved in? Yes, anyone who's uh, interacting with the federal government in any type of federal investigation uh, really has to be aware, has to ask themselves if they should even be talking to the government agent, uh, if they're under subpoena, should uh, make sure to comply with, with whatever they're being ordered to do. But the federal government you know, is the 500 pound gorilla. And uh, if they put you in their targets, um, look out. They've got quite a few assets and resources to pursue someone. And I'm at a loss. Is this stuff run centrally out of Washington, D.C.? And I've heard reference made to the Southern District of New York. Could you maybe help our listeners understand how the um, United States Attorney's offices are set up. Yes, Rich. Uh, most federal investigations, certainly numerically, are conducted out of one of the 93 United States Attorney's offices that exist throughout the country. And this, this is basically the ground force of the Department of Justice. These are the people on the ground. We're, we're talking in Michigan today. Michigan happens to have two, uh, two districts. Uh, we have two United States attorneys, and we have uh, career prosecutors who work under those United States attorneys. There are certain cases that, and, and of course, the United States attorney's offices are a component of the Department of Justice writ large. Our ultimate boss is the attorney general in Washington. But there are certain types of cases that are really headquartered in D.C., just by definition, uh, espionage cases. DC's all over those. United States attorneys can't just run with those. Uh, United States attorneys can't charge people with tax offenses without the approval of the tax division in DC. And uh, certainly the Department of Justice is heavily involved in any type of terrorism investigation that might be going on in any of the districts. But the more run-of-the-mill investigations would be handled right right at the United States Attorney's offices throughout the country. Ken, I know when we were talking uh, prior to coming on the air today that y you made mention that the most part, federal investigations, they're just really invisible to the public unless they bear fruit. What would we expect to hear about investigations that don't lead to charges? Well, if the government authorities are acting appropriately, you would never hear about someone being investigated that, that, that was never charged, that could hurt someone's reputation. And that's not what we're supposed to be doing. The vast majority of federal investigations are secret, conducted before federal grand juries. Federal grand juries are made up of common citizens who uh, serve for a period of time. Uh, they're sworn to secrecy. Prosecutors are sworn not to disclose any grand jury matters. Federal agents can't disclose grand jury matters. And so uh, you should never hear about a grand jury investigation unless a witness 
who happened to testify in front of a grand jury wanted to tell somebody, they're free to do so, but they should be secret uh, unless and until there's an indictment. So talk a little bit about people that uh, might get caught up in an investigation. You know, is it a level playing field when you're dealing with the federal government? Absolutely not. Federal uh, litigation in particular, uh, not just every attorney deals in that type of litigation. So if you happen to be under investigation, have to hire someone with federal criminal expertise, you better have a big wallet. It's going to cost a lot of money, even if you're exonerated. And I would say that is particularly true if you happen to be in the District of Columbia. The the law firms in the District of Columbia with this type of expertise charge $1,000 an hour and up for everything they do for you. And you can imagine how quickly that can add up. You did previously say something about the Southern District of New York. And I just wanted to mention that the Southern District of New York is probably uh, the most prominent of the United States Attorney's offices in the country. And they do a lot of special cases. The fact that the United Nations is located there is a, is a special fact that caused, there's a lot of foreign actors who are in and out of New York City. Uh, and so that is, that's, that's always been a special district, as is uh, the District of Columbia, too, has, has a United States attorney. Is, is it true that if a individual is under investigation by the feds, that the agents are allowed to trick and deceive in order to get information? And are there limits on that? And this may be a multiple part question, but also... I guess I'm not clear on how people get themselves caught up in uh, the situations of lying to investigators. Well, part of what federal investigators do, uh, in addition to serving grand jury subpoenas on people and entities, is uh, they often go out on the street and, and interview people. And if a federal agent believes that you may have committed a crime, uh, they may seek to interview you in a non-custodial setting. Were you to be placed under arrest and be in a custodial setting, the agent would be required to advise you of your Miranda warnings. That is, you have the right to remain silent, you have a right to counsel, you have a right not to incriminate yourself, uh, anything you say can, can, can and will be used against you, that sort of thing. But in a non-custodial setting, a federal agent could contact you and say, hey, can we talk about a, a given topic? And if you agree to that, it's not just going to be one federal agent that shows up. It's never going to be a one-on-one scenario. It's always going to be two-on-one. And it's going to be a couple of federal agents. Let's just say they're going to be FBI agents in this instance, although the federal government has many, many agencies with federal investigative agents. So a couple FBI agents would like to talk to you, perhaps at your office. It's a relaxed setting. You feel comfortable because it's your office. They can, uh, they can lie to you as to why they're there. They can deceive you in certain ways to elicit incriminating information from you. And agents can do this, the courts have held, but attorneys cannot. So if a federal prosecutor is involved in the discussion, the state bar rules typically forbid any type of uh, lying or deception by, by federal prosecutors. So that's an important distinction for people to know. But yeah, when you're dealing with the FBI, they're trained to engage in behaviors to elicit what they're trying to get out of you. Is this this kind of situation, if your average person is, you know, again, in a relaxed setting in their office, a couple agents come in, would like to talk to you about thus and so, you have nothing to worry about. 
are there tripwires out there, process crimes? And I know I've followed certain things over the years. And, you know, I was a guy that, you know, spend 12, 14 hours a day on the phone and in meetings, you know, do that six days a week. And if someone said, you know, did you meet with person A and then person B, you know, I might say, yeah, that sounds right. Although it could have been, I met with B before I met with A, uh, you know, because it all kind of right. gets into a blur. And what's the threshold? What are, let me ask you this. What are some of the process crimes I've heard about, you know, lying to an investigator? I don't know what the threshold is for that. Obstruction and or hindering an investigation. Are there commonly held thresholds or or are those fairly easy charges to make? And is that ever employed as a tool to get a person's cooperation? To answer your last question first, yes, it's 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 very often employed as a tool. If you can get a hook into someone and present them with the fact that they've committed a crime and that they have a problem, uh, you can often persuade them that you want to help them work out their problem. And if they help you, you'll help them. There are many process crimes that can occur during a federal investigation. So back to you're sitting in your office and a couple FBI agents come by and uh, you know they're dressed in suits. They look like business people. You don't see any guns. You feel comfortable in your office. They've come to ask you some questions. Uh, if you knowingly lie to those agents uh, about something material, you've just committed a five-year felony. Now, the non-custodial setting means that the FBI agents are not going to be recording the interview. They're later going to prepare a report that's called, in FBI parlance, a 302. So these agents are going to later prepare a report saying what you told them, or more accurately, what they say you told them. And there's going to be at least two oh, names boy. at the bottom of that report of the two agents that visited you, sometimes more. And having submitted to this non-custodial interview voluntarily, if in fact you didn't say what they said, you have a real problem because it's two professional agents now saying you said something and you saying you didn't. So that's, that's a very easy process crime. Another one would be witness tampering. Let's say before the agents come up to speak with you, you say to a friend of yours, hey, you know, should I talk to these agents? And your friend discourages you. And if it turns out that your friend had anything to do with the topic that they want to talk to you about, the friend might have just committed witness tampering. Or so someone might see it that way. Whereas if you called your lawyer before the agents came up and said, hey, should I talk to these guys? And the lawyer said, absolutely not. That's just legal advice. There's all these kinds of scenarios. There's even a, an omnibus uh, provision in the U.S. Code. It's often used, used against mafia figures of hindering the due administration of justice. It's this giant, vague net. You don't quite know what kind of conduct that that might be. But if in the discretion of, of prosecutors and agents and the grand jury, you've done it, you charge with a crime and you got a big problem, at least financially, to deal with it, as we discussed previously. Does there need to be an underlying crime in order to trigger the process crime? I mean, try to think of an example. Somebody is violating a you know, export law or something to that effect. Agents visit them. They find out, oh, there's no crime. But during the course of that, you know, maybe the guy didn't remember something right and could be charged with lying or 
didn't remember a paper while boy, that's obstruction. Does there need to be an underlying crime to have a prosecution around these process crimes? In my opinion, yes, but I'd, I'd say legally, no. I wouldn't want, uh, you know, as a 30-year federal prosecutor myself, I wouldn't want my FBI agents out on the street on fishing expeditions. I want them out there investigating real crime. But there certainly have been occasions in the United States where an investigation was undertaken. Allegedly, a crime had been committed as a predicate, but in fact, no crime had ever been committed. But people were later prosecuted on some of these process crimes. And now I'm kind of connecting the dots. So a person that wasn't involved with the crime might get charged, would have to raise money to come to their own defense might be cooperating to the best of their ability and still be facing a, a, a process crime, although they hadn't intended to do anything. In other, in other words, they weren't a criminal until the agents showed up, is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's a, a, a frightening part of it. So it sounds like it's fairly easy for a person to find themselves on the wrong end of an indictment. And does that not then kick off further uh, invasions of a, a person's life with search warrants and subpoenas and such. And, and you know, Ken, most of our uh, listeners are people that are not well-versed in the law. And maybe if you, before you talk about that next phase, it, what's the difference between a warrant and a subpoena and how might they be applied, in, you know, in a white-collar uh, situation? So a uh, subpoena... Uh, is something that is issued from the, either the grand jury or the court. Most of the public is more familiar with subpoenas issued from a court. You're a witness in a trial. Someone lays a subpoena on you. You better show up, basically a court order. Other subpoenas are for uh, the production of documents or other things. They're called subpoena ducas tecum. They have the force of a court order and can be enforced through contempt if necessary, and grand juries are issuing these types of subpoenas all day long, every day, that most people never hear about. The federal government wants to know about your phone records. federal government wants to know uh, where you've been traveling with your cell phone, all these types of things, uh, where your car's been driving, uh, information about you, what you're spending on your credit card. They, federal government can find out all these things through subpoenas. You'll never find out about it. Your bank, internet providers know because they get hundreds of these all the time. So that's that's the subpoena part. Um, the warrant part, there's a lot of different types of warrants. One type of warrant is a search warrant. So in order to get a search warrant, unlike a subpoena, federal prosecutors and agents can just issue subpoenas under the authority of the grand jury, and there's no cause necessary. And they can go on fishing expeditions if they want with these. They're not supposed to, but it can happen. A search warrant takes more process and there falls under Fourth Amendment protections. And there has to be probable cause that a crime's been committed and that evidence of that crime will be found in a certain location. So if someone wants to search your house, they have to go to a federal judge and they have to lay out showing a probable cause and an affidavit as to why there's going to be evidence of a crime at your house in order, in order to come there or to come to your business and search your business. Of course, probable cause is not a very high standard. 
Uh, most people think probable cause means more probable than not because of the word probable. In fact, it's about a one out of three chance if you want to put a percentage on it. So it's not that hard to get if you have some evidence to search someone's premises. And that uh, use of the word warrant now you know, rises, of course, to the warrants for surveillance that the surveillance court right. uh, can issue. And uh, given how that's done in secret, uh, the standard of care seems that it should be well, very high. There's, there are two types of those. Ty- you're, you're talking about wiretaps now. Yes. And there, there's two types of wiretaps. Um, there's one that uh, I typically handled when I was prosecuting. Let's say there's an organized crime figure and we wanted to tap their phone. We'd go to a judge and we'd get the wiretap permission. And that that type of wiretap would be sealed, but not classified. The fruits of that wiretap someday would end up in a court uh, as evidence if we if we struck gold. You're thinking more of the foreign intelligence surveillance intercepts, I think. Um, and those uh, almost never see the light of day. Again, you have to go to federal judges, and in particular, the FISA court judges only can issue those. But they're targeted against foreign actors in our country to include terrorist organizations, foreign governments, foreign spies, for people associated with them in some way who may be causing a risk to our national security. And so these also are running all over the country all the time. You usually never hear about them. In order to use one of them in a criminal proceeding, which happens occasionally, a lot of times they would need to be declassified because they are, by definition, classified. And the intelligence agencies are very stingy about letting prosecutors use those in federal courts. I don't know if that answer, fully answered your question on that, but it's kind of a broad area. It does. It actually, no, well, it actually leads to some others. And I know you were prosecuting terrorism cases. And would that fall under, you know, more criminal statutes like organized crime and using the first type of wiretap that you talked about? Or would that be looking for foreign actors that would require you to go to the FISA court uh, to get a, a FISA warrant? It, it could theoretically be either one once you start talking about foreign terrorist organizations or someone, people associated with foreign terrorist organizations. When we pursued people that we had reason to believe were involved in any way in foreign terrorist organizations, whether they were bomb throwers or merely financial supporters, uh, we would approach them with what was known within the Department of Justice as kind of the uh, Al Capone approach. Get them on whatever you can get them on. Al Capone went down on tax. He was a murderer. That's how it had to go. And that's what we would do with terrorist targets in this country, too. Of course, we'd want the most serious charge we could get, such as providing material support to a foreign terrorist organization. That's right in the in the federal criminal code. If it happened that we wanted to target someone's phone, uh, we could seek a regular wiretap. If we thought we were going to, it was going to end up in criminal court, we would probably have done it that way. If we were merely trying to help the intelligence service gather intelligence on this person, we might have been okay with a FISA. But oftentimes, once you start prosecuting someone, you have to tell them if you have, if you have intercepted them in many instances. So you have to be careful. You have to think ahead 
Uh, do you re- do you want to tell them that or not? And sometimes you might even walk away from a prosecution because the intelligence you gathered is more valuable than prosecuting this particular person. Maybe we can just deport them and be rid of them and keep our intelligence and keep our methods secret. So there are a lot, there are so many different factors going on in those kind of cases. It's hard to narrow it down and give you a, a narrow sketch on it. No, that's very, very helpful and given the FISA warrants that were sought by the FBI for the surveillance of Carter Page and picked up other people that were around Carter Page. And, you know, the veracity of the evidence that was coming forward was, I guess, known to be compromised at the time. I guess we'll wait to see how that plays out. But if you'd be willing to, Ken, and I know that there's lots of news still to come on this, And if some of this you'd rather not comment, I understand. But coming back to General Flynn, I'm just wondering, in your experience, how unusual was the conduct of the FBI agents going to interview, now this is the National Security Advisor, in his office, again, comfortable setting, and not telling him why they're coming, not going to the White House counsel, not advised he was at risk. And prior, and I guess, really question, how often would a FBI team have a potential objective of getting someone fired from their job? I could see investigating a crime, but why would they even think that might be an objective? Yeah, I'll answer the last part first. If uh, the FBI and federal prosecutors who are working with them felt that someone was a real danger to the national security Uh, Let's say they're working for the CIA, for example. One of the factors, obviously, in pursuing them would be to get them out of position where they could do harm. That by itself is not necessarily a a big no-no. However, the concept of FBI agents going to a place like the White House and engaging in this type of an interview is really unheard of. There's, there's, you can't use the term usual. Probably, it's probably the only time, the only time I know of, that something like this happened. There are protocols for this type of thing that would have involved the Justice Department, contacting the White House Counsel's Office, contacting whoever uh, they wanted to interview. None of these protocols were followed. They weren't necessarily legal protocols that um, make the case bad, but it demonstrates that something unusual was going on. And whenever I was prosecuting somebody, I would often say to a jury, when people are acting differently than they normally act, we're real interested in why Why is that? And often there was a nefarious reason for that. And so I guess I, I'd circle back here and say, we'd have to ask ourselves, why are FBI agents doing something that they've never done before and that they never do? And I think that is the million dollar question. So With these FBI agents, how much weight is given to their reports that they found General Flynn was cooperative? Uh, They said they didn't think he was lying. You know, they apparently they wrote these 302s, but are the 302s considered gospel or is it common to edit them after the fact and revise them or once written, that's it? Well, there's a process for 302s. So the agents who are present prepare it. Usually there's one note taker, one person who prepares it, but the other the other agent will look at it. Before they're ever finalized, they go through a chain of supervision for approval. There's sign-offs on these. But yeah, once they're final, 
their gospel. They're much like a police report. If a police officer pulls you over, says you were swerving, and then you you swore at him uh, when he approached the car, he's going to write that in his report. Whether you did or not, most people, if they see it in the report, are going to think you did, even though it's a one-on-one scenario. They're police, you're not. Here you got two federal agents who who say you, who say you said something. If it's in the 302, that's what you said. That's what the jury's going to believe you said, unless these are are, are just not credible agents for some reason. In terms of of making corrections, yes, it's possible that sometimes there's typos in 302s. Some mistake was made that's obvious to everyone. But in terms of editing substantively after the fact, you know, that's that's just not done. That's not that's not normal. If it is done, it should be labeled as an amended 302. In my opinion, in my practice, that's what that's what we would have done. We would have said amended so that the defense knew there's more than one version. And uh, the prosecution's going to take a hit for having more than one version in front of the jury, but sometimes you had to take the hit. The correction had to be made. You said in your question that some of these agents uh, said that that they believed General Flynn, they didn't think he was lying. That type of thing would not have been in the 302. The 302 would have said, okay, we, we asked General Flynn this, General Flynn answered such and such. That, that's really all the 302 would have said, and it wouldn't have had agent impressions in it. The agent impressions that you've heard of in the news, they would have been expressed orally, or maybe they were part of the agent notes or something like that, but they wouldn't have been part of the official 302. I see. That's something else that I'm learning uh, as we record this today. A couple of questions here, too, relative to uh, General Finn's plea. Yes. He pleaded to lying. Right. And again, could it be a faulty memory or something? And we talked about how the prosecution, just the presence of the investigation can drain someone economically, uh, which we understand occurred. Uh, but there was also now allegations about General Flynn being pressured to sign a plea agreement in exchange for a non-prosecution of his son. Is this something that would be considered usual or unusual? Like, is it just, you know, fair game, whatever tool you got to pull out of the bag, you use that to get the plea you want? Or are there boundaries that are established? I would say it's very common for the federal government to go after relatives or other people that you care about, and but to agree not to not to uh, prosecute them in the end if you will plead guilty. That's that's a real that's a real common occurrence. There's not necessarily anything wrong with it as long as the other person also committed a crime. A classic run-of-the-mill example might be husband and wife uh, both signed the 1040. They failed to report half million in tax revenue. It wouldn't be unusual for the for the husband to plead guilty and the non-pros on the wife. Not saying it happens every time, but and uh, show you a little bit, I guess, of the chauvinism of the federal government that I was, that I said that. The, that the, the <laughs> man would take the hit, but uh, that, that, that's a that's a typical one. So that's not necessarily out of bounds. Now, uh, you mentioned the the cost that 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 climbed with General Flynn, and uh, I mentioned to you previously, you know, the Washington D.C. law firms, big money, big money law firms. So so just think about this. this. All this this is not a RICO case. This is not a terrorism case, right? This is a false statement case. And his, this, that's, that's the simplest charge in the federal code, maybe, false statement. 
his legal fees were approaching $3 million. Can you imagine? And he had to sell, had to sell his house. On top of that, as I understand it, the law firm had a conflict of interest that they didn't tell him about. So, um, yeah, I, I think uh, when this when this whole thing's over, uh, General Flynn's going to be looking back at them for some litigation. Sounds like legal malpractice on the surface, for sure. Could also be an unethical practice in terms of the bar. You can get in trouble with the bar on top of getting sued. If, you, if you've had a conflict that you didn't disclose and didn't resolve in an appropriate way, and it's my understanding that there's an implication from the special counsel's office that the law firm uh, could have a legal problem because the law firm had made the uh, FARA reporting for uh, General Flynn and his company. That's FARA's F-A-R-A Foreign Agents Registration Act for work that his company had done with Turkey. And there was an implication that if General Flynn didn't plead guilty, that the government might become interested in that. It's uh, uh, interesting inside that little city of Washington, D.C. And you mentioned this special counselor, counsel Robert Mueller. He has said that General Flynn provided substantial information about ongoing investigations, and therefore he recommended little or no jail time. I actually read the pleading of that this morning. Yeah. And since Mr. Mueller was probing Russian collusion, wouldn't it be logical to conclude that General Flynn helped Mueller advance that case? In other words, wouldn't there have to have been a case of Russian collusion to be helped in order for General Flynn to help that case and therefore avoid incarceration? You would think so, right? That's what your question's implying. You definitely would think so. And, and the, the correct term for what you're talking about is a substantial assistance. That's a term of art in the U.S. sentencing guidelines. It's ways in which you can drop a drug dealer who has a 10-year mandatory minimum, make that 10-year mandatory minimum disappear because the drug dealer helped you, for example. In this particular case, as I understand it, General Flynn sat down for what's known as proper interviews with the special counsel's office on more than one occasion at the direction of his attorneys. And typically during these proper interviews, you're given uh, a queen for a day letter, which means that you can't be prosecuted for anything you say as long as you tell the truth. And so General Flynn sat down with the special counsel and the special counsel interpreted his sit downs as far as the court was concerned. They decided to call it substantial assistance. Now, there's a wide range of discretion in terms of su substantial assistance. When I was a prosecutor, I didn't give credit for a sit down unless it went somewhere. I used to call this ink in the book. And in order to get ink in the book, I had to have a search warrant because of your assistance or uh, someone got prosecuted because of your assistance or some tangible thing that I could point to and say, they helped, they helped us do that judge uh, on such and such day. Now it, it appears since General Flynn never became a witness, uh, in court against anybody, that the special counsel's office was very generous in describing whatever General Flynn did as substantial assistance. But if, in fact, General Flynn provided uh, the kind of substantial assistance that I had in mind during my career, uh, you would have seen him as a witness uh, in a trial someplace, helping convict somebody that the special counsel's office was targeting. That is a mystery of how he got that recommendation for little or no 
jail time. Ken, as I'm putting the pieces together here, I'm reminded we had the Honorable Milton Mack, Judge Milton Mack, on the Common Bridge a couple episodes ago. And during that episode, he said that often jail defendants, now that's much lower level on the criminal scale, would plead guilty and accept time served as their sentence just to get out of jail, even though they had not committed the crime. And are there any suspected parallels here with General Flynn making the plea just to put this thing behind him and spare his family? Absolutely. If, if I, think, I think a lot of people would plead guilty if the alternative, even if they weren't guilty, if the alternative was your son's going to prison, you're going to be financially ruined, right? Uh, and you may go to prison too and may even die there. If you could, if you could plead guilty not do a day in jail and not face those consequences, I think a lot of people would do that. It's very understandable. And there probably are people who plead guilty uh, in the United States to things that they, that they didn't do for various motives. I can't always explain someone's motive if they don't tell you what their real motive is. But General Flynn was under a lot of pressure here financially and with his, and with his son, and not to mention that his son had recently had a baby. So it wasn't just his son; uh, it was his grandchild, and he didn't have he didn't have all the facts. He didn't know that the agents didn't believe he lied, and so he was faced with a scenario where he was completely unfamiliar, didn't know anything about the criminal justice system. He was a general; that was his business, and was in foreign territory. And his so-called expert lawyers there in a prominent firm in Washington D.C., charging over a thousand an hour, said this is the right thing to do. That's how that happened as far as I can see. And then into this scene now comes Attorney General William Barr. And we have in one camp uh, people that say he is a hero for cleaning this up because of the coercion and the bad representation, etc. And at the same time, we have others that are saying, hey, you know, look, the Attorney General is destroying the integrity of the Justice Department. Is there a way that the public can understand in nonpartisan terms the actions and the filings that Mr. Barr has made, and importantly, what checks and balances are imposed on his actions? Well, the ultimate check and balance uh, this year happens to be an election year. So attorney general is appointed by the president. People don't like what the president and his underlings are doing. They can vote for somebody else, and they'll have a new attorney general uh, as soon as January of next year. In terms of what actions... Uh, Mr. Barr has taken, you know, I have to say that in some ways, Mr. Barr has been extremely lenient, at least from what's come out publicly so far, with misconduct by all kinds of people. Let's go back to the fact that General Flynn speaking to the Russian ambassador was publicized. That was a secret classified recording that somebody in the U.S. government decided to put on the front page of the newspaper. That's a, that's a much more serious crime than lying to an FBI agent, much more serious. To date, no one has been charged with that. Mr. McCabe, number two at the FBI, was found to have lied on four separate occasions with very clear evidence by the inspector general. The department under Mr. Barr has announced no prosecution for him. Some people could see that as quite is quite lenient. Mr. Comey apparently made select leaks of potentially classified information of his 
discussions with the president. I believe it's been announced that there will be no charge as a result of that. People could say that that is a very lenient, light, light touch on other, on other shenanigans that have been going on surrounding this whole situation. Mr. Barr, in my opinion, and I, you know, I was with the department for 30 years. I saw attorney generals on that were Democrat and Republican, and this guy's a straight shooter. He's he's very knowledgeable. He's very honest, and he's doing what he thinks is the right thing, which most of the attorney generals that I've worked under, I believe, were also we're also doing the right thing. Now, Senator Sessions, he, he, in my opinion, wasn't up to the job, should have never been appointed to the job. But now, now there's a real professional in the attorney general's office. And I will also remind you that he recently criticized the president and said, and, and Mr. Barr said the president was issuing tweets that was making it impossible for Mr. Barr to do his job. And uh, that, that not only was that a, an appropriate criticism of the president, but Mr. Barr was right on. You can't have a president who's issuing statements about ongoing criminal cases that can poison a jury pool to the point where the government can't proceed with the case. That's just not, that's just not the way you do things. And so um, I've given you a list there of examples in which I think Mr. Barr has demonstrated his fairness for the rule of law, regardless of, of who it is that's violated the law. Those are good reminders to have. And I think I joined Mr. Barr and most Americans in asking the president to please stay off Twitter. Just please stop. Yes. <laughs> That's it. Well, this, um, this whole situation illustrates the point that the presidents who, who aren't also lawyers have more problems, it seems. They don't understand how law enforcement works, how intelligence works, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so that was part of Mr. Trump's problem coming in is he was, he was a neophyte when it came to the law. He probably should have fired Jim Comey on day one. Uh, Hillary Clinton would have fired Jim Comey on day one for what he said right before the election about her uh, email scandal. And he had no business going out saying she wouldn't be prosecuted as FBI director. That's not his job. And so uh, a sophisticated person in the law would have fired Comey on day one. McCabe would have gone with him and none of this would have happened the way I see it. Well, and it was Comey who said he wanted to leak part of the reporting now known as the Steele dossier that we now know that Comey knew was false at the time in order to get a special prosecutor appointed, and he achieved that. I mean, he came right out and said that's what he wanted to do. Yes. And yeah, when you kind of look at the, the sequence of events as you've described, if the president knew the job better and terminated Comey and McCabe on day one, then there's no meeting of uh, selective disclosure of what's in the Steele dossier. There's no leak to CNN. There's no appointment of the special prosecutor. There's no two plus years of a uh, Russian collusion investigation that produced no Russians and no collusions. But that's that's another one. Ken, I wonder if we could do a quick lightning round on, on these things. And if, if they deserve more than the time we have remaining, uh, we could come back another day. But sure. Uh, this is just a grab bag of questions th that, uh, you know, I don't want to think troubling Americans is, is our FBI, Department of Justice, our National Security Agency, our DNI, our CIA, are they playing it clean or are they being used for partisan political purposes? And so just this week, we learned that former Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, was saying one thing on cable news 
including using the words aid and abet as it pertains to Russia, while at the same time, under oath, he was saying, and now I quote, I never saw any direct empirical evidence that the Trump campaign or someone in it was plotting or conspiring with the Russians to meddle with the election. Is that a crime or is that just playing politics? I'm assuming he told the truth under oath, therefore he didn't commit a crime. It's not a crime to lie on CNN, but you could get sued for slander and libel and those types of things. Okay, next on the lightning round, similarly, we've learned that many others, including Susan Rice, Samantha Powers, Sally Yates, and Loretta Lynch, each in sworn testimony, confirmed that they never saw any evidence. And some, such as Evelyn Farkas, went on cable news egging on public investigations after she had testified under oath that she saw nothing and knew nothing about any evidence pointing to collusion. Is there an innocent explanation here? I don't think so. Uh, If they're making conflicting statements, they're not necessarily in trouble if they told the truth under under oath. Uh, As I said previously, if you're a lawyer, you're not supposed to be out out lying, even on TV. And Adam Schiff, does he face any legal jeopardy? And, And I asked the question based on this. Representative Schiff heard Secret House Intelligence Committee testimony that unequivocally disputes his public assertions. He described evidence of collusion on multiple occasions in plain sight, compelling, ample, plenty, significant. And now that the record of the secret testimony is in the public, it's mind-boggling. Does he face any legal jeopardy for doing this? No. He wasn't in court. He wasn't under oath. He lied. That seems to be pretty clear now, but he's from a a district with supporters who apparently, many of whom are believers in the the Trump-Russia collusion. And as far as Nancy Pelosi is concerned, he did what what she wanted him to do. So I don't think he'll even pay a political price. I don't think he'll lose his congressional seat over this, even if he's been shown to be a liar and there's no legal jeopardy. Or lying in Congress or on TV. He is a lawyer, though. I, I, I will I will say that. I don't know if the California bar will become interested in, in this or not. He may not care if he doesn't want to practice law. Yeah, that would, I, I won't hold my breath to see how they re- react. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Ken, this has been, <laughs> this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, as we wrap up here, care to speculate on what might be coming next? I know that Mr. Durham is still at work. I know there was new documents delivered last week. Any speculation on what might occur next? I'll tell you what I would like to see. And I I would like, you know, Judge Sullivan is the judge before whom Judge Flynn pled guilty. And he's now requesting that his plea be set aside and the Justice Department is concurring with that request. But, you know, this has wasted a lot of Judge Sullivan's time. And he's well within his rights to hold a hearing on this and find out, if people have been lying to him, whether under oath or not, if lawyers have lied to him, if lawyers have, have been hiding exculpatory evidence uh, in his court, and he could e- he could easily hold people in criminal contempt for that. And if I were if, if I were one of those lawyers, I'd have a lot of sleepless nights uh, worrying about what Judge Sullivan might do to me. That's a fascinating speculation, and we'll have to see what the next turn of events is. Ken, this has been so informative, and 
I know that our listeners are going to appreciate this. We have posted on our website the paper you wrote about what every business should know about federal investigations. I encourage all the listeners to, to read that. And again, thank you so much for being on The Common Bridge. It's been an honor to have you. Thank you very much, Rich. It's, it's been a pleasure. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.